Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning again. I think it's time to change our theme music five weeks in because there's some folks that are kind of moving to it, so they've got it memorized. You know, with the children up here, and, and as we do uh, parent-child dedication, and you have these little bitty ones, as a parent, um, one of the things you pray for for your children is peace, peace in their life and peace in this world. And our world is not at peace. And I'd like to take a moment because the scriptures encourage us to pray for peace in Israel. And I'd like to just pray for peace in Israel. It's a complicated prayer because there's a church of Jesus Christ that's both in Israel and in Palestine. And then as Christians, we are encouraged, are we not, to pray for our enemies? And so there's a number of prayers as I pray for Israel that I'd like to share. But one of the things that happens when you unleash war is there is a, there's an evil that comes with it. There seems to be an increasing acceptance to horrific, inhumane action. And so innocent children and people are killed. And as a parent, you pray your children never have to face that. And so as these children have been up here and I've thought that, I thought, well, let's pause and pray. So would you, would you pray with me? Father God, we pause and we give you thanks in Jesus' name for these families. We ask you to be with each parent up here and the journey that they have before them. And we pray for peace in Israel. We pray, Lord, that you would be merciful as war rages, lives are lost. We pray for the church that exists in both communities. Lord, it's complicated. And it has been for a very long time. And we know, Father, that your heart, you have a place in your heart for the nation of Israel, and I don't understand your timetable. But we know that you are sovereign and you care deeply, not only about Israel, but the world. And so, Father, through the complexities that we create as human beings, we just come to you sovereign, God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who called forth Israel, would you be merciful? Would you be gracious? Would you bring peace? And Lord, we know there is a spiritual battle behind this. And we ask, Father, for your mercy there. Would you restrain evil? You taught your disciples to pray, and so we pray in the same way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I pray that there would be a great deliverance from evil and a great turning to you in Israel and all of the surrounding areas, that the Messiah would be known and worshipped. And it's in Jesus' name, the Messiah, that we pray. Amen. Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about Israel in light of Christ. And it ends with this doxology that I'd like to end our prayer time with. 
Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As the children were up here, I thought about um, the fact that kids hide when they do wrong. They just self-select out of the room. They just go and tuck away somewhere. And as a young dad, the first time that happened to me, I was so frightened because I couldn't find my child that it decided to hide from me because of something. And then when I finally found her, I was so elated that she was okay. I'd forgotten about whatever it is, the thing she had done wrong. And she was kind of happy with that ending. Small children create small problems. So for the, for the parents in the room, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. You can clean it up with a rag. It ain't that big of a deal. I'm just giving you a little free advice there, right? But as kids get older, right, they, uh, they make bigger problems. So my mother was a school teacher. She taught here in Baton Rouge at Estruma High. At the age of 19, she was teaching. And she was therefore younger than some of her students. We don't know how that worked out. But being a teacher, she has a, um, an unyielding, un, without any hesitation, she is pro-teacher. She always has been. So if you're a teacher, whether you're good at it or bad, my mom is for you. And what that meant as a child was, if you got, if you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home. There was no blame shifting. There was no calling. There was nothing. You come home with a slip that says Kevin's in trouble. Kevin was double trouble. That's just the way it was. And speaking of school, when we got our driver's license, which was a, it's a fun story to tell. Um, when I got my driver's license, I was also riding a motorcycle at the time. And I thought it would be really cool at 15 in January of my ninth grade year to have my license in middle school. Well, I was junior high then, and ride my motorcycle. Here's the problem. My mother doesn't ride a motorcycle. So when it came time to get my license, my birthday, just so everybody knows, January 10th, you know, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so on the 11th of January, we go to get my license. I on my motorcycle, her in her car. I don't know how she chose to drive there, but it took her a lot longer than it took me. So I get to the DMV and I go up and I said, I'm here to get my license. And they said, do you have a parent with you? And I said, well, she's not here yet. She's driving the car. To which the very wise man across the counter said, how did you get here? I said, I rode my motorcycle. To which he said, son, you don't have a license. To which I said, yes, I know. That's why I'm here. And that's how that day started. <laughs> so we laughed with license. And then I got the long lecture about school zones. Well, first about tickets. You get a ticket, you pay for your ticket. And if you get a ticket in a school zone, you may never drive again. Yes, ma'am. Last week, going to French Truck Coffee on Government Street, I had to go through two time zones, school zones. It's 8.58, and I'm doing 20. And the guy behind me is on his horn. And I'm like, dude, she is still alive. <laughs> and I'm not losing my license today. <laughs> Small, as you grow, you know, you make bigger mistakes. And with bigger mistakes become bigger consequences. And we're gonna look at mistakes and consequences of decisions today. 
And while the people we're talking about are not children, they're acting like children. They're, they, they're going to act like it. Now, you have to remember that Adam and Eve is where we are. Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible, third chapter. We're starting in verse 8. We'll look at verse 7 here in just a minute. But they chose to disobey God. He said, you can do whatever you want over here, but don't do this. And that was what they chose to do. He also, like a loving parent, told them the consequences. So the consequences for their decision, it didn't drop out of the sky. He wasn't just reacting in anger. He said, this is what will happen. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. There's going to be consequences. They knew that going into it. And the biblical word for disobedience in the Bible is sin. It's a three-letter word. It's used exclusively in church. So if you're not familiar with church, if this is your first time in a long time or ever in a church, here's some other words that the Bible uses. Rebellion, transgression, those, those both work. But it's the three-letter word that often gets spoken about. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today, sin. Now, Adam and Eve wanted to be autonomous. That word's made from two Greek words, meaning self-law. They, they wanted to write their own rules. They wanted to be the ones that said, these are the rules for my life, not God's. And so they jump in. Now, sometimes the, the people in the church can betray themselves in, in a very self-righteous light when it comes to talking about sin. And that's really unfortunate because the biblical picture of sin is that it's equally, we're, we're all equally um, guilty. We're all sinners. No one has the upper, upper hand on anyone else. Here's what it says in Romans 3.23. For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the human condition we will watch unfold before our eyes in Genesis chapter 3. Everybody deals with this. And, and as I said, God said, you're going to surely die if you disobey. I gave you a synonym a few weeks ago for death. The word separation applies. Um, alienation applies. I'll use both. But we're, what you'll see happen almost immediately is separation. Separation between humanity and God. Separation between the people to each other. Separation from humanity and the perfect environment of Eden. And that separation, that alienation, when fully formed, leads to absolute devastation. And if you're a Christian here and you're, you're versed in uh, sin and how it uh, ma manifests itself in your life, then, then you know it can be very, the consequences can be very devastating. And so that's what we have here, devastation. And so let's go back to last week. The last verse, we see that when they ate of the, uh, of the tree they were not supposed to, their eyes were open, verse 7. Then their eyes were, uh, of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. Their eyes were open to good and evil. Their, their innocence was gone. Now they're dealing uh, with no, no more innocence, and they're dealing with shame. And their solution is to stitch together fig leaves. I don't know what kind of covering they make, but they became a, they became a barrier between Adam and Eve. It was the first thing that began to separate them. It wasn't there before. 
and now it is. But the devastation of, of their, the consequences, they're, they're very large. And so here in your outline is where we start. Sin, that'll be a driving word today. Sin alienates humanity from God. Here's what it says in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It begins to unfold before them. It's a man and his wife. It's not just Adam and Eve anymore. They're a couple. They're together. And they have chosen to separate themselves from God. They are the ones hiding. He hadn't pulled away from them. He's actually looking for them. And they're hiding in plain sight. I don't think the, the, the fig leaves were some great camouflage. I can't see you. I think he's, he'd never ask a question he doesn't know the answer to. He's giving them a chance to just step out, own their mistake. Now, when it comes to hiding, it's something we all do. Now, if you think you don't, let me just give you a few examples. The phone rings, caller ID says, yeah, that person. And you just gently go over and silence it. And you don't answer it. What are you doing? You're hiding. I, I, gotta, I don't want to. I'm busy. I'm busy all of a sudden. And then you finish your golf swing or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. right? You hide. When you're in class or, you know, or you're in your dorm room or you're, or you're at work and you're going down the hall and there's that person you, you don't want to see, you don't want to talk to, you duck into a room, you, you find your way to the restroom in a hurry. Why? You're hiding. You're hiding from them. You're, you're in the school zone and you're not sure what your speed limit is, but you see the police car and you tap your brakes because you don't want it to be known that you might have been exceeding. You're hiding. We all do it. We all do it. And we all do it to some extent when we feel like we've done something wrong. It doesn't leave us. We just get, we just get better at it. So I'm going to ask a series of questions this morning that may be more than you bargained for when you kind of showed up, but they're helpful in our pursuit of God and our walk with Christ. Here's the first one. Are you hiding? It's a hard question to answer because in answering it, you kind of show yourself. Are you, are you hiding? Now you might think, well, Kevin, I'm in church. Of course I'm not hiding. I can't think of a better place to hide from God than in church. Right? Because that's where we put on airs, and that's where, we, that's where we broadcast to everyone else. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Don't ask me any questions. I'm here. It's good. How about those Tigers? Let's talk about something else. They finally found a defense. Wow. What about that offense? Wow. And the whole time, I'm hiding. It can happen. We can hide. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. See, it takes him a while to get to, so, so I hid, so I hid. You know what God wants you to do if you're hiding? Is come to him. And I wonder, what would it take? What would you need to know? What would you need to understand? What would you need to feel deeply inside yourself to go, I can step out of the shadows and come to God? Because so many of us think that if we do that, the hammer's going to come down. And that's not what you're going to see here. God is pursuing them. He's looking for them. 
Don't miss that. He's looking for them. Hey, where are you? This is the time where we would hang out in the cool of the day. Man, that was like today, right? This is when we'd hang out, and I, I don't know where you are. Don't miss this. God looks for us. He's looking. If you don't know him, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to give you a chance to, to trust in Christ today. Put your faith in Jesus. And you need to know he's looking for you. He's looking for you, and he cares about you. Jesus would tell maybe the best short story ever told, and that is of the prodigal son. A son that says to his dad, hey, look, I wish you were dead, and I want my inheritance. He said, I want my inheritance, but it's the same thing, right? You don't get your inheritance in somebody until somebody's dead. So I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. I'm going to go live my life different than what you've taught me, shown me all the way across. <coughs> Excuse me. And he separates himself, and his dad longs to see him. And it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, this. So he, the son, got up when he came to his senses, and he went to his father. But look what it says about the father. These are powerful words. When Jesus was telling this story, he was talking about God the Father's heart. But while he, the son, was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of God. And Jesus is telling that story. There's always one or two crowds, usually two crowds in his midst. Those that feel like God would crush them and those that are self-righteous. And I think as Jesus tells this story, the whole room of those that want so badly to have a relationship with God but don't feel like they can, realize they can. He's going to run to me. In Genesis, in Genesis 3, he's walking. Hey, Adam, where are you? I'm missing you. Adam and Eve said that they were hidden because they were afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of what? What has God done that they should be afraid of him? He's created everything for them. He's put them in a perfect place. He's given them each other. What has he done? Now, now they are aware of something they weren't aware of before, good and evil. And is God good or evil? He's good. He's good all the time all the time. He's good. But now they're, they're wondering and they've hid. Their perception is so changed because of this intrusion. And so often our perception can be so confused about God. Sin also alienates us from each other. It has, an, it has a direct impact, not just vertically with us and God, but each other. Relationships are hard, hard. And we can leave people hurt. We can do people wrong. We can lie. We can cheat. We can not keep our word. And it leaves a wake of separation and devastation. Look at verse 11. And he said to the man, to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. And I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
What God wants them to do, what he's asking them to do, what he's teasing out of them is confession. A lot of times you think confession is just, you know, finally admitting under duress. It's like uh, interrogation. That's not what it is. God's just saying, would you just step into reality? Would you just say what is true? Because that's where freedom is going to be, when what is true. And he's asking them, and he's trying to get them to say it, and they're so reluctant. And Adam starts with this, hey, the woman you gave me, what, ha- what happened to all the, all the poetry, all the singing that he did when, when God brought her to him? And he was like, oh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. Look at her. Oh, my gosh. What happened to all that? They separated. Now, she was perfect. She did meet all of his needs. She was uh, supplying what he lacked. And now she's the problem. But don't miss this. The woman you put here. So his real accusation is not to Eve, but to God. Last week we saw this in James 1.13. When you're tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody. It's not from God, but that's where Adam goes. And I'm sure Eve is feeling great about herself. And so God turns to her and says, hey, what about you? Well, it's the serpent deceived me. And right there, you have a complete breakdown of relationship. And God is saying, hey, could you confess, well, the woman that you put here, she deceived me. And the very last thing he says, I mean, it would have been so much better if Adam had said this, hey, Adam, where are you? I'm right here. I'm right here. I ate. That's not what he does. It's the very last thing he says. I ate. It's the very last thing she says. And God is trying to say, step into the truth. Step into reality. Don't live in the shadows. Here's my second hard question. What do you need to confess? What do you need to confess? What do you need to be honest with God about? Honest with yourself about? Honest with another person about? An apology is a confession. Hey, I've hurt you. I'm so sorry. I acknowledge that. It's a confession. God, I've, I've done what you've not asked me to do. I've done wrong, and I'm just coming. And what is it that you need to confess? We play the blame game. That's what Adam and Eve were doing. Well, she, well, that serpent. No one's just going, I did it. It's just time to quit playing the blame game. Let me give you God's solution to the blame game. It's really beautiful. He blames Jesus. He doesn't blame Jesus with the motive of your bad choice because Jesus' motives were pure. He puts the consequence of our bad decision on Jesus. He settles it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin because he was perfect, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's just an unbelievable statement. He became sin who knew no sin, that we could be okay with God. This is the length God goes to when you come forth and you say, I want to trust in Christ, but I have all this stuff. And where is, who gets blamed for this? You know why Jesus, why God did that? One, to be merciful to us. Because if he allows the full weight of his judgment to land on us, it annihilates us. We can't do it. We can't pay our own way. We can't recover from our own mistakes. It's too much. And so he sent Jesus 
And then God's going to say, you know what? There's some consequences to your choice. I'm going to need to address those. And too many people today think, oh, God needs to be loving. He just needs to look the other way. That's what a loving person does. That is not what a loving person does. A loving person is truthful and honest. And God is not only loving, but he's just. And to be not just is to not be God. To be unjust is to say, I'm going to cash in one of the key qualities of what it's like to be God, just. We don't want justice when, we're, when we've done wrong, right? But we definitely want justice when someone else has done wrong. So, next, sin requires God's response because it's such a big deal. It needs a big response, a solution. And it's going to be fair and it's going to be compassionate and you'll see that as it unfolds. And the language changes. I'd like to say the tone of voice changes. God then just says, here's the oracles that you need to know. This is what's happening now. And he addresses the snake and Satan behind the snake. He addresses the woman. He addresses the man. He begins with Adam. He ends with Adam because Adam's responsible in so many ways. Sin requires God's response because sin is called a spiritual problem. We're not human beings, I mean, having a human experience, right? We're having a spiritual experience. And with the, with the intrusion of good and evil in our life, in our heart, in our minds, now there's a, it's a whole new world. When we pray about war, and as I mentioned, people can just go off the edge in war and just allow the most evil and vile things to be caught up in it. And you think, where does that come from? It comes, it's a spiritual problem. The evil is in the heart of humanity, and it needs a solution. And so to this spiritual problem, God is going to levy a curse. God never curses Adam and Eve. He curses the snake in the ground. I'm going to curse the snake and the devil behind it. I'm going to give a promise. Here's the first thing he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Notice he's not looking for a confession. He's not, he never asks, what have you done? He knows but the devil is behind this temptation. He says, you know what? Snake, you're going to be on your belly. You're going to eat dust. And if you eat dust, that's the, uh, that's the ultimate humiliation. Eat my dust all the days of your life, and those do not go on forever. The next verse. I will put enmity, hostility, confusion between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. Her offspring will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. What is this talking about? Right here, Genesis 3, verse 15, we get the promise and the glimpse of Messiah. It's just, it's right here. It's beautiful. He will be from woman, and he will end you. You can count on that. You might bruise his heel, but he will end you, throw you into the lake of fire, Revelation 19 and 20. It's pretty clear. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we get this idea that humanity, right? We're humans. We need a human solution to our human problem. And so God became human so that he could be in our place, stand in our place, and pay our debt. It says this, since the children have flesh and blood, the children of humanity, he, Christ, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him, the devil, who holds the power of death. That is the devil. I'm going to break it. You don't need to fear it anymore. One of the great fears is of death, but he provides spiritual freedom. There's a spiritual problem in the heart of man. Maybe you've experienced some of the darkness that's in your heart and you've been surprised by it and you wonder, what do I do with it? Because it can get really dark. And what we would see here is you need to know that God promised a solution, has now provided that solution, and it's for you and it's for me. So here's my third question. Do you need to trust Christ today? Do you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, you know what? My life's a mess. My rebellion, my transgressions, I'm not sure what to do with them. The wake of trash I've left in my life, the broken relationships, the people I've hurt, I don't know what to do with the shame, and I don't know what to do with the guilt, and I don't know what to do except pass the buck and blame somebody else, my parents, my friends, my condition, my education. And you're telling me there's a spiritual solution that begins in my heart and works its way out into my relationships and then with God? Yes. That's what I'm telling you. And it begins with me going, you know what? I am going to trust in Christ today. Today, the promised seed of woman is to come, has come in Jesus Christ to solve our spiritual problem. Sin requires God's response because there's a spiritual problem <laughs> And there's a relational problem. And the relational problems begin right here. And we get some deep insight into some of the unique struggles between man and woman, between husband and wife, between the most intimate of relationships. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. <laughs> wow. Her tranquility is all changed. Her domestic life has changed. What was once maybe easier, you know, not being somebody that's ever birthed a child, I don't know. It seems like a, a labor of love, and it got harder and more painful here. And then there's insubordination. It's just stitched in to the fabric. Control has replaced freedom. Coercion has replaced persuasion. Division has replaced multiplication. To love and to cherish has become to desire and to dominate. One person said this, male domination in the history of the human race is a perpetual reminder of the fall, just as the serpent's crawling on the ground is a reminder. The woman at her worst, at her worst, will be the nemesis to the man, and the man at his worst would dominate women. And do we not see this played out 
would be objectification. Do we not see it played out in so many areas? For those of you who are married, let me ask you this question. What if when you felt like you needed to take control of the situation, you were able to say, wait a minute, I, I know where this is from. And as a Christian, you might go, you know what? I'm not going down that path. I'm going to ask Jesus to help me respect him rather than control him and manipulate him in the checkbook or my withholding my body or whatever the situation might be. And, and men, what would happen in your marriage if you sensed it and you went, wait a minute, I know where this is from. I know where this originates from. I don't need to go there. I'm going to ask Jesus to change me and fill me and give me strength so I can just love her and cherish her as I told her I would. What would change and be so awesome? In Ephesians chapter 5, it's a great chapter on Christian marriage, and right in the middle of it is the, is the promise that when Christ is a part of our marriage, he's filling me, he's filling her. It's just unbelievable. And there's hope in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it ends with this. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and she must respect her husband. It's pushing back on this initial breakdown of relationship. And it's pushing back through the promise of empowered living through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then last, Adam. Adam is addressed and his purpose, his work is frustrated. Sin requires a response from God, requires God's response because we have a spiritual problem, we have a relationship problem, we have a purpose problem. A purpose problem. Adam had a will to obey, right? A work to do, a will to obey, and a woman to love. And he failed at all three of those. And now it doubles down. It's, it's worse. You might remember the word in Hebrew for work is also the word for worship. And so Adam was to work and tend the garden. It was to be this grand act of worship to God. There was a certain ease to it. There was a certain, oh, this feels so good. The grass is clipped. Everything is lined up. It just feels so good. That's why I like to cut grass. It's the one thing in my life that I can finish, and it looks good for more than one minute. All right? It's just, oh, it feels so good. Here's what God says. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to your wife and you ate from the fruit of the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground, not the man. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Ooh. Humanity is not cursed. The ground is cursed. What was once easy for him is now difficult. And that's true of most men I know. They make work an idol, or it's so laborious and so difficult and so unenjoyable. They come home and they kick the dog and yell at the kids and struggle to feel like they have purpose. It all originates, that frustration originates right here. And it says, because you listen to your wife, it's not saying Eve has nothing to say. Let me be clear. If I did not listen to my wife, I would not be the man I am. I would not have the home I do. I would not have the family that I have. I would not be able to leave the legacy that I'm trying to live. I wouldn't be able to do the ministry that I do. But Adam, 
on this subject was to listen to the Lord, and he abdicated. He abdicated right here, and there were consequences. The things that were once easy became really difficult. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and dust you will return. Your hands are in the dirt and the dust and every day I'm going to remind you this is where you end up. It's hard. And now we don't work, you know, a lot of us in the dirt, but it's still hard. Because some of some of the guys in here that have just been chugging away for decades, you know it's hard, whether it's in the ground or behind a computer screen. And it's just hard. And if we stopped right here, it would be fine. But God continues. Grace requires God's response. Why? Because sin requires God's solution. We can't solve the problem. Genesis 3.20, it seems to be that Adam's like, you know what? Okay, this is going to be hard. And it says, and Adam named his wife Eve, which means life or living, because she would become the mother of all the living. He's, it's an act of faith. He's saying, I'm moving forward. I understand the consequences. But then God does two very important, very compassionate things. He prevents God, mankind from making things worse, and he comforts mankind by covering his shame. Verse 21 then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve and clothed them. The first death in creation in the whole book of the Bible is at the hands of God. He had to kill animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. He did it and he clothed them. Just like all these parents are clothing these little ones, he, he dressed them. What a tender, what a sweet moment that you have here. And of course, he does it in love. And how do I know that? John 3.16 tells me, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And from the days of Israel forward, God, people have been killing animals to cover over the sin. And Jesus came along and said, I'm the final sacrifice. When you have me, it's over. It's over. And shortly after his death and resurrection, if you know history, 70 AD, there have been no sacrifices in Israel. He is the final sacrifice. And when I trust in him, he's the one who covers me. Shame has to do with feeling dirty. Guilt has to do with feeling wrong. When I'm guilty, I've done something wrong that needs to be made right. When I'm shameful, I feel dirty, and I'm wondering how to get clean. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, agree with God, go ahead and put it out there. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's guilt, that's debt. He forgives it and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful picture, and he's doing it right here. Third chapter of the Bible. And then verse 22 through 24, and then the Lord God said, man has now become like us, knowing good from evil. His heart is filled with it. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove him out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Edom cherubim, angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. God had to protect the perfect place that he had created, and he had to protect man from becoming immortal and living in a condition that he was never designed to live. It was, it was a severe act of mercy, and it's powerful. He covers our shame, and he promises that there's going to be a seed born of woman that will end our spiritual battle. Man, this is the God right at the start. There's a few times in the New Testament where Jesus says, let me tell you who I am. And he does it always with interesting audiences. And one time he was eating with a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. Again, two types of people in the room. Those that were self-righteous and those that were knowingly sinners and far from God. And they started asking Jesus' disciples, hey, why does he hang out and eat with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus, I don't know if he stood up, I don't know how he said it, but Luke 19.10 says this, he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why I'm here. And can you imagine being one of those on the fringe, one of those that just thought, is he looking for me? Could he be looking for me? Because I am so lost. I can look good on the outside, but on the inside I'm dying. Could he be looking for me? Maybe that's the question you're asking. The Son of Man did not come, he did not, it says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to seek and, and punish. He didn't come to seek and interrogate. He didn't come to seek and humiliate. He didn't come to seek and, and emasculate. He didn't come to seek and to crush us. He came to seek and to save us. This is the God of Genesis 3, and from Genesis 3 on, this is his heartbeat through the whole Bible. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. So wherever you are today, there's an opportunity to step out of the shadows. As a Christian, you can step out and say, I'm right here, God. There's, this is what I need to tr confess, and I need to trust you. And if you're not a Christian, yeah, I invite you to trust Christ today. This is where it begins. It's an act of the will. It's not just a, a decision in your head to believe that Jesus existed. It's an act of your will where in your heart you believe he came and stood in your place. He died the death that you deserved. He rose from the dead to give you life. It's for you. If it were skins for garments, it would be you putting them on, not admiring them on a hanger. Those are for me. Those are for you. Let's put them on. Yeah, let's put them on. The angel at, the, at Eden, what does it tell us? It tells us we can't save ourselves. You can't get back in on your own effort. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I invite you to come through Jesus to him. Paul said it this way. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Hey, where'd you get those, uh, where'd you get those cool clothes you're wearing, Adam, Eve? I don't think he took the opportunity to brag. I think he said, like all Christians say, oh, by the grace of God, I've been covered. By the grace of God, 
my shame has been cleansed. By the grace of God, my sins have been forgiven. By the grace of God, I'm learning to love those who I've hurt. By the grace of God, I'm learning to forgive those who have hurt me. By the grace of God, I'm building new relationships with my spouse. By the grace of God, I'm walking in the newness of life. And he wants to do the same for you. I wonder, would you trust him today? Would you just say, yeah. Bow the knee of your heart and trust him. I'm gonna ask us to bow our heads and allow me to pray. And I don't wanna embarrass anybody, but I'd love to pray for anyone that would like to trust Christ today. So I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand and go, Kevin, I'd like to trust Christ today. Would you pray with me? If there's anyone in the room, would you just raise your hand and give me a minute to see it? It's a full room and I will pray for you. Is there anyone? Just hold your hand up high enough for me to see it. I'm looking around. Just give me a minute. Yes, thank you, sir. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Pray with me. Father God, for those who raised their hand and those that didn't but wanted to, I offer this prayer for them to say in their heart of hearts. Lord Jesus, today I'm putting my trust in you. No longer my failures, no longer my past, no longer my future. I'm not laying claim to anything in heaven. I'm trusting you and you alone. And I thank you, Lord, that you died in my place, that you rose from the dead to give me life. And while I may not understand it all, I know that you'll forgive me, that you'll clothe me, that you'll welcome me into your forever family. And so with all I know about me, I entrust all I know about you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.